Acts chapter 2, starting from verse 14. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs in the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah, when the people heard this, they were cut to the hearts and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many of the words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. 
all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. How do you view church? How do you view church? I hope for many of you, lots of uh, wonderful things come to mind, both in terms of what church means theologically and in what church is by your own experience. But other people don't have those same reactions. If uh, you're not yet a Christian, you may think that the church is a dying institution. You look around, especially here in the West, and there are denominations that used to have hundreds of churches up and down our country, and now they're struggling to find one minister to look after four, five, six tiny, shrinking churches. For you, perhaps, your biggest thought is that the church is on its deathbed. Others have different struggles when they think about church. Some are struggles that we have ourselves, and others are struggles that we have with church. Here are a couple of examples of each of those struggles. Lots of people struggle with church because we prefer doing life on our own. People are messy. I'm still struggling with sin, and so are you. And for all the best intentions that we will have, with all the desires to love and care for one another, as we do life together, and doing life together is right at the heart of church life, there will be times when I will sin against you and when you will sin against me. It's going to be messy. And that's why for some Christians, they prefer not to be too involved with church. It's easier to have more of a kind of Jesus and me approach to our Christian life. I mean, I might call that struggle individualism. There's another struggle that we might call consumerism. Lots of people choose a church the same way that we choose a restaurant. If you're going out for a meal on your own, you want to make sure that the restaurant is selling your favorite food in an atmosphere that you like. If you're going out with the family, especially if you've got kids, you're going to check the kids' menu and see if there's a play area. If you're taking out one of the older members of your family, you're going to make sure that there's easy access and there's safe parking. And if any given restaurant doesn't have all of those things, you go somewhere else. Now, in some ways, it's right that we're even more discerning when it comes to church. There are non-negotiables when it comes to being a part of a church family. The gospel, the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, has to be preached and proclaimed. Biblical truth has to be cherished and lived out. And if you're missing those key ingredients and other things, what you're looking at isn't a local church. But often, our consumerism goes further. We might prefer a church where the sermons are five minutes or 30 minutes shorter. Maybe you prefer older hymns 
or newer hymns. Maybe you would like more teaching or more engagement with our community. That The list is endless, but the effect's always the same. The things that we're personally looking for in a church often determine our willingness to be a part of and our willingness to get involved in a local church. Now, both of those struggles, individualism, consumerism, they've been struggles Christians have had with churches ever since the church began. They're not new. But many Christians are wrestling with them in new ways since the pandemic. Self-isolating has forced us to be more individualistic. For all that we've sought to do with live streaming and with all the other ways we've tried to stay connected with each other, the pandemic has fueled individualism. And for some, that has unsettled good habits that were a part of your life before the pandemic. The same is true with consumerism. At no no other point in the whole of human history... Have you been able to sit at home on your settee and choose between services? It's never happened before. And all of that choice for, for so many has, has fueled something of a dangerous comparison game. And it can make us struggle with this battle against consumerism. Individualism, consumerism, two struggles that we have ourselves when it comes to church. But there are other struggles that perhaps you may have with church itself. From the outside, some churches have left a devastating reputation that has undermined the gospel. Leader after leader has walked away from biblical truth and shunned the authority of the gospel. Others have abused their authority and done unspeakable things that have caused untold damage. And if perhaps the main way that your idea of what the church is, is shaped by what you hear about in the news, it will almost certainly be very bad. But you might also struggle with the church from your experience on the inside. Some are survivors of those kinds of unspeakable abuse. Some of you haven't been through that level of trauma, but you've experienced enough of the unpleasantness that you're feeling bruised. Perhaps because of feuds between families, perhaps because of unrealistic or unfair expectations in this or any other previous church, perhaps because of painful members' meetings, perhaps because people have said something that has caused hurt or damage that has just taken a long time to work through. And for all of those reasons, maybe you've heard somebody say or have even thought yourself, I love Jesus, it's the church I have a problem with. I'm not saying that's a right view. I'm saying it's a real view. It's something that lots of people struggle with. And for all of those struggles, many people have a low view, a 
core view of the church. Non-Christians look on with disdain. They're just waiting for it to die. Some Christians hover around the edges, not wanting to get too close for fear that they might be hurt again and not wanting to commit to too many things. Perhaps just having a, a routine of coming to a few things but not really getting right involved in the center. Many of us, perhaps the majority of us here this morning, are committed members of this church family and, and you can genuinely look at all sorts of things that you are thankful for and ways that you've been able to serve and be served. But perhaps even you are feeling tired or bruised or jaded, however you might describe it. And for all of those different struggles, we need a fresh vision of God's purpose and blessing in the local church. We need to be reminded of the privilege of being part of God's family. We need to see both the blessings and the responsibilities that come from being freely committed to loving one another in the local church. We need to trust and put into practice God's provision for grace, for forgiveness, for when we do hurt one another. And we need to see what the church is pointing us towards and preparing us for so that with all of that in mind, we would not only know joy in being a part of the local church, but that we'd persevere and keep going when things are hard. Now, as elders, we thought it would be helpful to pursue that vision in two ways. Starting next Sunday evening, we're going to begin a series in the book of 1 Corinthians. And if you are familiar with that letter, you'll know that Paul covers a whole range of topics in the course of that book. We're going to learn a lot in the months to come. But one of the key themes that he keeps coming back to is that as a church, we would become the church we've been called to be. A church that is centered on the gospel. A church that is committed to godliness. A church that is absolutely dependent upon the Spirit. And in the way that Sam was reminding us in the bite-sized truth, that delights in the diversity of gifts that come from the Holy Spirit in the local church. But 1 Corinthians is a big book, <laughs> and it is going to take us months to work through all of it. So the second way that we wanted to try and, and recapture that lovely vision of the local church is to do a shorter morning series and, and see what the Bible as a whole, but obviously perhaps particularly the New Testament, has to teach us about the local church. And the way that we want to structure that is by working through our church covenant now, if you haven't seen a copy of our church covenant before, uh, there are printed copies of this on the screen, on the, the welcome table in the lobby on the way out. And if you are new to our church family and you haven't had yet one of our, our welcome books, please pick one of those up there on the same table, um, and it's included in that. What is a church covenant? Well, like many churches, we have two important statements that explain what we believe and how we're going to seek to serve one another in the local church. Our statement of faith is the same statement that all of the churches that are affiliated to the Fellowship of Independent Evangelical Churches believe. It's short. It, and there it's two pages. In the welcome booklet, it just comes down onto one page, nine paragraphs, in which what Christians have sought to do is summarize the foundational teaching of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. 
And that statement of faith helps us know that we all believe the same foundational truths as Christians. That's not our only document. We don't just have a statement of faith. We also have a church covenant. And that covenant contains the promises that we freely make whenever anybody comes into membership in our local church. And it helps us know how we will all seek to serve as Christians. Statement of faith helps us know what we all believe. Church covenant helps us know how we will all serve. Where did ours come from? Well, about more than seven years ago, before uh, I joined the church, that the elders and the members of the church spent time thinking about what the Bible teaches us every church should be. And specifically, what is the Lord calling Emmanuel Church to be? And they worked through the detail of different parts of instruction in God's Word, and in light of all of that, produced a vision statement that hopefully is not unfamiliar to you. Emmanuel Church exists to glorify God in all of life, to proclaim Christ to all peoples in word and action, and to grow in love for God and one another. That, as our church family, that is our vision. That's why we are here. But as the elders and the members wrestled with, how do we put that into practice? How do we see this vision at work in our church family together? They worked out on what the Bible teaches about those three key areas. What does God teach us about how we are to glorify him, to proclaim Christ, and to grow in love for him and for others? What does that look like as a church family? And that is what our church covenant is. It's a set of promises that help us see how living together we will seek to put our vision into practice. And over the next few weeks, we're going to work through that. That's going to be our structure, as it were, to think about what it means to be a local church that is committed together to glorify God and love and serve one another. And our prayer for all of us, well, if you're faithfully committed member of our church family, we trust and pray that this series is going to fill your hearts with fresh joy. So many of you serve and commit hours and hours of otherwise unseen time in prayer and in preparation and in teaching or caring or doing so many other things. And we hope and pray that as you work through this series, You'll be encouraged afresh to see what a blessing it is to do that and to continue doing it with great joy. Others, perhaps, we pray will find this series to be a loving but a challenging reminder of what it is we covenant, we promise to do with one another. Perhaps the the post-pandemic new normal has unsettled some of those habits that had just been a part of life for a very long time. Or perhaps they weren't a part of your life for a long time before. And now is a good time to really see how you could recommit to life in the local church. And others of you are brand new. You're here visiting our church family, and we're delighted that you're here. We want to serve and encourage you in every way in your faith. But one of the ways that we'll be able to do that is to help you see what the local church is and how you can serve in it.
That's what we're going to focus on for the remainder of our time this morning. So please turn back to Acts chapter 2. And before we get into the detail in the weeks to come of all of the specifics of what it means to live in a local church, I thought it'd be helpful this morning to step back and remind ourselves of the big picture. What is the local church? And perhaps more specifically, who makes up the local church? And what does that tell us about what it is? That's what we see described in the first sentence of our covenant, as those who have been saved by personal faith in Christ. We recognize that he's providentially joined us to this church family and freely commit ourselves to him and to one another. That is what is happening for the first time in Acts 2. Peter preaches one of the greatest sermons that has ever been preached, standing up before these thousands and thousands of Jews who've gathered in Jerusalem for Pentecost. Peter explains how this new covenant has come. Everything in the old covenant has been pointing for thousands of years to the coming of a new covenant. And as the Holy Spirit is being poured out from verse 16, exactly as Joel had prophesied hundreds of years before, as the Spirit is pointing for all to see that Jesus is the Messiah, Peter is saying the new covenant has come. And that is going to be hard for you to perhaps understand if you're there in Jerusalem 2,000 and a bit years ago and everybody's getting excited about a man who you know was born as a Jew and was born to an otherwise seemingly unimportant couple in in Bethlehem. But, verse 22, he was accredited. He was certified. He was guaranteed by God through miracles, wonders, and signs to be the Son of God and the Savior of the world. He's the one in verse 25, whom the great King David looked forward to as the one who would defeat death. He's the one, verses 31 and 32, who would bring about resurrection and eternal life because, verse 33, he's the eternal Son of God. He's the exalted one who's now seated at the right hand of the Father and is pouring out upon all of his people the blessing of the Holy Spirit because, there in verse 36, he is both Lord and Messiah. And what did the people do? Verse 23. You, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him on the cross. Down at verse 37, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them, saying, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Here's the beginning of the local church. Here you have this new covenant community coming together, and it is formed by people, in that statement in the covenant, who've been saved by personal faith in Christ. 
That's what happened to these 3,000 people. It's an enormous number of people. There are about 100 and, what do we get in Acts chapter 1? Uh, 120 or so in Acts 1.15. And now we get 3,000 added. That's an enormous percentage increase. But in every single case, it's the response of personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit opened their eyes to see both who Jesus is and what they'd done. And they were devastated by it. They couldn't undo what they had done. They realized in their wickedness that they had killed the God of life and they couldn't undo that. Just like you and I cannot undo our sin. But they could repent of it. They could turn from a life of sin and believe that even though their sin deserved to be punished, that on the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ took upon himself all the punishment of everyone who would believe in him. And and with that repentance and new birth comes a new covenant sign. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, the Jews were used to covenant signs. Every male Jew had been physically circumcised. But this sign is different because the new covenant is different. Jews became a part of the Jewish nation uh, by birth, and you could tell that by their circumcision. Christians become part of the new covenant community of the church by repentance and new birth, and you can tell that by their baptism. It's the covenant sign that someone has joined the family of God, not because of anything that you've done. The only thing that any of us bring to our salvation is the sin that we need to be saved from. You read through Paul's letter to the Romans, and what does he tell us? He tells us that we were guilty enemies of God, who were dead in our trespasses and sins. That's all we bring to our salvation. We are not saved by anything we've done, and also we're not saved by anything our parents have done. This, this promise that repentance leads to forgiveness, that, that, that this promise is given for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And as a Baptist Church, we believe that that promise is given to everyone who responds to the promise. That sign is given to everyone who responds to the promise, which is a change from the old covenant. When you think about the circumcision that was given to every male. But that change is what the whole of the new covenant was preparing us for. Under the old covenant, every male were circumcised when they were eight days old. But what that symbolized was you were part of the ethnic nation of Israel. It didn't mean that you would personally trust in the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That would have to come subsequently as an act of personal saving faith. And you see that again and again all the way through the Bible. One of the most uh, Semi-scary, but not scary because of the providence of God. Semi-scary ways of reading the Bible is to realize how many times God's people almost messed it up to the point of being obliterated. One of those times is in Deuteronomy 10. You've got Moses on Mount Sinai receiving the law of God. 
And what are the people doing on Ground Zero? They're bored waiting and build a golden calf to worship instead. And God says he would destroy the entire nation. But for Moses, who pleads with God for 40 days and 40 nights, and God graciously hears Moses pleading, and he spares the people. And he sends Moses back with with the law freshly inscribed on two new tablets and commands Moses to call the people to fear the Lord your God, to love him, to serve him. But then he tells the people, circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Think about who he's speaking to. These are already the physically circumcised people. But God says what you need is for your heart to be changed. And that's exactly what he promises would happen. Later in Deuteronomy, in chapter 30, God promised the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all of your heart and with all of your soul and live. And over the centuries, that is what many Jews experienced. God graciously saved them personally. But thousands of years later, when you get to the Jewish apostle Paul, he looks back on all of that history of the Jewish people, and what does he say? For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. The old covenant people was a mixed people. All the men were physically circumcised, but not all the men and women had personal saving faith in their God. And God promised through Jeremiah that when a new covenant came, things would be different. Jeremiah 31, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah, it will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I, though I was a husband to them, meaning though I was faithful to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will circumcise their hearts, is what God is saying in this new covenant era. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor, meaning in the covenant community, not everywhere, their neighbor and say to one another, know the Lord because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. And here's Peter now in Acts 2 telling us that the new covenant has come. All of the blessings that for centuries God's people had been waiting for. All of that expectation that God's people wouldn't be made up of some who believed and some who were different and didn't. All of that has now been achieved because the promised Messiah has come in the Lord Jesus Christ. How do you know that that's happened? Especially if you're living after his resurrection. You know because from heaven he is sending out the Holy Spirit on all of his people. Which is exactly what Joel and Jeremiah and Ezekiel said would happen when the new covenant comes. How do you know if you're a part of that covenant community? You have personal saving faith. You have repented and been baptized as a symbol that you are part of this repenting and believing community. Now in the weeks to come, we are going to unpack what this means in all sorts of ways. 
We're going to think about what it means to freely commit ourselves to one another, which is the language of the covenant, picking up on this idea of church membership. If you look at the end of Acts 2 there, we read in verse 41 that uh, when these 3,000 new believers were saved, they were added to their number that day. There's a hint there about some kind of in that these people are brought into. We're going to see what the rest of the Bible has to teach us about church membership. But we're not going to stop there. We're going to see about what our urgent need is as Christians in this local church to share the gospel. Oliver mentioned in his lead, we've read it in Joel's prophecy, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how will they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? Part of what it means for us to be a local church is to be committed personally and prayerfully for others for the mission of God to bring others to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for themselves. We're going to think about what it means as a church family to live in this now but not yet. We're in this new covenant where everybody who's a part of the church family is a professing believer, but we're still struggling with sin. I will continue to let you down as hard and as prayerfully as I would fight not to. I may sin against you and will need to be reconciled with you. And God gives us the graces and the provision to continue loving and serving together in the local church as we do that. Enables us, in the words of our covenant, to maintain a life of peace and unity with humility. We're going to get, Lord willing, to all of that. But this morning as we close, I want you to fix your eyes on what a precious thing it is for us to be part of this new covenant community. You think about the thousands of faithful believers, perhaps millions, who for centuries in the old covenant were waiting for these promises to be fulfilled. That has been fulfilled in our time. All the way through human history, God has been drawing to himself men and women who will worship him. But only in the new covenant does he bring together a people who are all saved by grace. Who are all blessed with the Holy Spirit. Who all know that we should have died and faced the judgment for our sin. But are personally trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ for our forgiveness. We know that our eternity is secure. If you're a Christian, what grace is the gift of God to us? And if you are not yet a Christian, I pray that you would have the same experience as this crowd there in Jerusalem. That if not today, then in the weeks to come, the Spirit would open your eyes to see who Jesus is and who we are. Ah, what we deserve left to ourselves. That you would cry out, what must I do to be saved? And the Spirit would help you to see. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit.
Ours is a glorious privilege to be part of the local church. And I trust and pray that in the weeks to come, we would be filled with a fresh vision that would enable us to not only serve one another well, but to serve and glorify our God and King.